Good. Hey, uh, we are in the book of Galatians, but before we jump in, I just want you to know that I uh, spent a lot of the last hour, most of the time on a preaching Sunday, on a Sunday that I'm here with you, uh, I spend most of the first hour in the fetal position on my couch in the office praying that the Lord's return would come somewhere around 11 a.m. so that I don't have to do all of this with you. And you would think to yourself, what? Doesn't he love it? And this is kind of a, let me just share with you, someone uh, gave this to me this morning. Uh, this is the wife of a pastor and she says, uh, pray for your pastors on Sunday morning. This was Saturday night. Let me tell you about Saturday nights for the pastors that you love. Or you don't love. They are pouring over a bunch of crossed out, edited, scribble, scrabble notes they've been working on since Monday. There's a new angle that keeps popping up, and they can either entertain it or rewrite the entire sermon or just let it be. In every spare minute, their minds are drifting back and forth to their points, their illustrations, interpretations. Is this the best telling of this story? They are praying for the 10,000th time that God will show up and make something beautiful out of this jumbled mess of notes. Because teaching the word is the hardest, holiest, most challenging task on planet earth. They will positively come up with tweaks and new ideas and entirely alternative sermons while they sleep or don't sleep. They will be up at the crack of dawn tomorrow, which is today, going through their material, praying, saying a few parts out loud up at church early because, unfortunately, there's businessy parts to church also. They keep taking deep breaths and begging God to make something of it all during the last chorus of the song or when Don Nellis is up on stage right before their sermon. And God will show up. He does that. This spiritual dance happens every single week, or at least on the weeks that I preach. Say a little prayer for your pastors tonight. Teaching the Bible on Sunday mornings is just the most wonderful, scary, inspiring, important thing. It's exhausting. It's exhilarating. It's a bunch of human people trying to talk about Jesus in a way that reaches out to human hearts. And somehow Jesus uses this hot Sunday morning mess to redeem and love, and comfort, and move, and convict, and change people week after week. It will never stop being a miracle to me, and me too. Would you pray with me? God, would you today do something in this room that this sermon can't accomplish all by itself, but God, that you, by the power of your Spirit this morning, move mightily in our hearts. We come here this morning expectant that you would show up, that you would do something in us. And I believe that, that this morning, God, that you want to speak to us about our relationship with you. And so it's no accident that we're here. The very fact that we're here means that we are drawn, that your spirit is drawing us to you. And so I pray this morning that in all of this, God, that we would be attentive, that our hearts would be quickened, and that your word would become alive to all of us in this place. In Jesus' name, amen. Hey, uh, Galatians chapter 3, we're going to go verses 19 to 29. And I want to talk about these two ideas, the ideas of the law and the promise. And this is crucial for Paul as he's talking to the Galatian believers. But you need to know this, that the law has a purpose. And that's the question of the morning. What is the purpose of the law? Now, there are some ridiculous laws. Have you ever heard of dumb laws? Have you ever actually broken a law that you didn't really know it was a law until after? 
afterwards. Like, we had, like, one of the worst camping trips ever 10 years ago. So bad that we were amongst all of our friends that we had to, like, I, I took one of our kids because that was the issue and got in the minivan and we drove up to Santa Barbara and we fell asleep in the back of the car. Depending on what city or county you're in, you are not allowed, it's prohibited to sleep in the back of your car. Did you know that? How many of you have broken that before? You probably didn't know that. Well, there's some other ones like it is unlawful in the state of California. And this is some, this is, I, I pulled this off of dumblaws.com if you want to look at this. Um, and if it's wrong, then write me an email. And we'll talk about it. I don't care. Um, it's unlawful to let a dog pursue a bear or a bobcat at any time. In Blythe, everyone loves Blythe, right? In Blythe, you're not permitted to wear cowboy boots unless you already own at least two cows. In Chico, Chico, California, detonating a nuclear device within city limits results in a $500 fine. <laughs> in Dana Point, one may not use one's own restroom if the window is open. There's, oh, I love this one. In Arizona, if you're found caught stealing soap, you must wash yourself until the bar of soap has been completely used. <laughs> and my friends and family would appreciate this one. In Indiana, which is why I don't live in Indiana, it's illegal to attend a public event or use public transport within four hours of eating onions or garlic. <laughs> All right. We got those out of our system. Now, those are some laws. And what I want us to understand and what I want us to dig through today is this idea of, of the laws, the law and the promise. And we're going to define what the laws are that are being referred to by Paul in here and what is the promise. But here's three things, okay? This is, this is the part of the message where I'm going to tell you what I'm about to tell you, and then I'm going to tell you, and then at the end I'll tell you what I told you. Does that make sense? Um, I'm going to talk about this morning how the law reveals our ruin, that it shows that we are really broken, depraved, and, and kind of messed up in need of grace. But the promise reveals our remedy, that there is a remedy to our sinfulness. And the result is that this, as we go through all of this, and we are changed by the love and the grace of God, that we are one. Now let's look at this. The law reveals our ruin. In Galatians chapter 3, verse 19, Paul is going through, and he's, he's going through this idea that the promise the promise is something that was given to Abraham in the very beginning. You could look at this in Genesis chapters 12 and 15. God makes a promise and he says, Abraham, out of you, out of your seed, there will be many. As, as many as the number of the stars in the sky and the sand on the seashore. And through you and your seed, all of the families on earth will be blessed. And it says, because Abraham believed... It was because of his belief that he was saved. It was counted to him righteousness. In fact, it was nothing that Abraham did. In fact, you can look in Genesis 15. There was this thing where they got some animals together. And Abraham cuts them in half. And then normally what you would do if you wanted to have a contract, you take the person that you have this contract with and you walk in the midst of the bloodied animals. They've been split in half. You walk through and you say, if I ever break my end of this deal, may I become like one of these animals. But during this little session that God has with Abraham as he's making the promise, Abraham is asleep 
while God walks through the midst of this offering, showing that Abraham did nothing except he believed in the promise that God had for him. But this law that comes 430 years later, the law that is given to Moses on Mount Sinai, 430 years later, comes and it adds something. And so this is the question. Look in verse 19. It says, why the law then? It was added because of transgressions. It was added because of sin. Having been ordained through angels by the agency of a mediator until the seed would come to whom the promise had been made. Now a mediator is not only for one party only, whereas God is only one. My best shot at those last two verses is that the angels gave the law to Moses and there was a better mediator that would come, and that is Jesus. But you look through all the commentaries, and what I love best is what John Piper has to say about that tail end of 19 and 20. He says this, I'm not going to deal with this because I don't know what it means. I cannot figure out how the two halves of verse 20 relate to each other. I would be happy for anyone to give me insight here. So if John Piper can't figure it out, at that moment I'm all, perfect, I'm going to keep going. Here we go. Verse 21, it says, Is the law then contrary to the promises of God? Is the law contrary to the promise of God? For if the law had been given, which was able to impart life, then righteousness would indeed have been based on the law. But the scripture has shut up everyone under sin so that the promise by faith in Jesus Christ might be given to those who believe. The law reveals our ruin. But I want you to hear this and understand that the law was given to be a spotlight on our sin. It was used to show us our transgressions. So that when you would read the law, you would say... Oh, I'm not doing that great. I, when it comes to my life measuring up to the law, I'm failing. I'm messing up. This is not what we normally like to preach in church because it makes all of us feel really bad. We'd much rather talk about grace and love and forgiveness and moving on in heaven and Jesus. But the law was a spotlight on our sin. We look at the law, though, and... Think about the law. And this is what's hard for us here in the 21st century is we look at the law. And I'm going to, let's just go to the Old Testament for a second. And I want you to see to what extent do you follow this law from the book of Deuteronomy. Deuteronomy 22 verses 10 to 12. You shall not plow with an ox and a donkey together. How many of you have broken that law recently? (laughs) Not many. Let's keep going though. You shall not wear a material mixed of wool and linen together. Bet you some of you are out there breaking that law right now. And you don't even care because you didn't even know it. Well, I'm shining a spotlight on your sin this morning. (laughs) You shall make yourself tassels on the four corners of your garment with which you cover yourself. Have you ever seen the Jewish people? They wear those strings, the tassels coming out. They're following this law, and most of you today are not. This is the issue for us. I mean, this wasn't just for like the Old Testament Israelites. Like they're, they're like, man, there's so many laws. It's not just the Ten Commandments. 613 laws in the Old Testament. How can you possibly follow them all? 
Well, the answer is they didn't. They failed miserably, which is why there's a whole system of offerings, burnt offerings and sin offerings and grain offerings, right? So we're constantly needing this forgiveness and atonement because we keep messing it up. Uh, some of these laws, here, this is, you can look up weirdoldtestamentlaws.com. Just kidding, but this is true. Look, how many of you, I mean, this is in the Bible, so you can't, I cannot get in trouble for saying this. Ready? This is, it says, Deuteronomy 25, it says, If two men, a man and his countrymen, are struggling together, they're fighting, and the wife of one comes near to deliver her husband from the hand of the one who's striking him, and puts out her hand and seizes his genitals, then you shall cut off her hand, and you shall not show pity. You're lucky I didn't read it in the message, all right? I can't get in trouble. This is the Bible. It's the Word of God. I might get in trouble, but it's okay. Then I won't have to be in the fetal position in my office anymore. It'll be great. But look, you read something like that. It says, hey, if you have a rebellious child, you could take them outside the gates of the city and you can have them stoned. Do you want to read, which is great. Some of you are like, yes, I would love to do that to my children or your children, somebody else's children. Let's not even get into what the Bible has to say about menstruation, right? Like, guys, if you, if you, oh, no, we're not going to go there. All right. All right. We're moving on because I could get really in a lot of trouble with that. The, the law was a spotlight on the sin of the Israelites. They had the promise. The promise was still there. But the law was a spotlight. You read the law. You look at the law. And it shows you where you are falling short. The problem is that most of us in here today, you look at yourself, and I think most of us think that we are good people. Right? Maybe a couple of you, no, I'm not really good. But most of us, we think that we are good people. You're here at church. You give. You might serve. You don't stone kids that deserve to be stoned. And, and you go through this. And, and what I think is where we, we, we believe our goodness comes from is that we look at other people in our lives and we look at their weaknesses and we say, I am not as bad as them, so I must be good. The problem is that we are not looking at our lives against the backdrop of the law of God. When you take your life and your actions and your thoughts and your deeds and you put them up against what God is asking us and how God is asking us to live, we fall short every single time. The law completely exposes our inability to hustle our way into our own salvation. See, while we may be good in our minds and in our hearts, um, some of us, we are trying to work out our salvation by doing lots of really great things. And, and you do. You do really great things. Many of you are, are very impressive with the things that you do, but God is calling us to men. You have to look at your life through the lens of Scripture. And when you do that, you realize that things are broken, things are wrong. Um, I went out with the student ministries team um, this, this week, and we, we did a little thing, we, I called it paddleboarding and prayer. Um, this is like the calm before the storm for student ministries. It's kind of the last time we all really are all together because we just, everyone's going to Albania, Costa Rica, San Francisco, Hume Lake, it's just kind of nuts. And so we went out and there was what, like eight of us out there, and uh, we go down to Newport Beach, and uh, 
admittedly, I'm not great at board sports. That's kind of the category of things. I'm surprisingly athletic in other areas, but not at board sports. And so we're on the paddleboard, and we're not even 50 feet from the shore, and I've already fallen in. Uh, Mind you, for the two hours that we were out there, nobody else on our team fell in even once. Um, And so I, it was stand-up paddleboarding. I was mostly on my rear end or my knees the entire time. Um, And we get to uh, maybe the last 20 minutes, and Doug Brown um, literally at one point gets off his board. He goes and does swinging on a playground right there off the water, and then comes back, and he was still ahead of me, but he waited for me. And he said, Matt, you're, you're using the paddle wrong. I've been using it backwards the entire time. See, there's this rule that if you kind of hold, there's this law in place, if you hold the paddleboard in a certain direction that it's shaped and designed in a certain way that when you kind of use it, that it propels you forward. Um, And so I did it, and I changed it at the very end, and I was still in the very back of everybody the entire time. The law exposes the things that are wrong. Here's another case in point. We had some car issues this week. Needed to uh, bleed the brake fluid out of our braking system, something like that. The guys who uh, were doing this, uh, I have a hybrid, and so as they did this, they didn't know you're supposed to do it a certain way. And so they basically, like, they said, hey, your car's ready to get picked up. Nobody tested it or anything. I turn it on, pick it up, and lights everywhere on the dashboard. There's just these lights everywhere. So the guy comes out, and he prints out the manual from online. He says, oh, it looks like we were supposed to do it this way. And so they had to get the car another day, and they had to figure out all of that. But I want you to see that the law, the Word of God, is supposed to be a spotlight for us. and supposed to show us the way to live, how we are supposed to do it. Now, the law is like a map. It's supposed to guide us. It's supposed to get us the way we're supposed to go. Warren Wearsby, he says that the law did not give life, but it regulated life. The law is better at asking for a result than achieving a result. Pastor Dave in his email this week talked about a ticket that he had forgiven. But a lot of times we have tickets because we have broken the law. But if you think about it, when you drive and you have the speed limit, most of you don't speed like crazy, right? In a 65 mile an hour zone, you're not going 100 miles an hour, but you're probably going 75. We don't speed excessively, but we all break that. But that that law is there to regulate us because we don't want the ticket. We don't want the penalty for that law. And so we're called to look at our lives in such a way that says, if I put my life up against the backdrop of the Word of God and how He's called me to live, how am I doing? This is most evident for me personally. With my Jewish background, my people today are still enslaved to the law. They're still trying to follow all the laws, and none of them can do it. There is only one, and his name was Jesus, but the rest of us, we fail miserably. And it's so hard, and what Paul is trying to say to this church is, man, you guys can't do this on your own. You've got to submit to the grace of God, to the promise you have to believe And so Paul also addresses this in Romans chapter 7. The whole chapter is great, but if I just take a quick snapshot, it says, What shall we say then? Is the law sin? May it never be. On the contrary, I would not have come to know sin except through the law. For I would not have known about coveting if the law had not said, You shall not covet. J.C. Ryle, he says, the law shows us that we don't just fall short of God's will. 
requiring some extra effort to do better, but that we are completely under sin's power, needing rescue. And that's it. That is our issue. You take the law, you take the word of God, and it's not just the Old Testament. Don't, don't look at your life and say, okay, that's the Old Testament, but I'm under grace, I'm under the New Testament. Go through the New Testament. There's more than a thousand different commands or laws or ways that we're supposed to act. And none of us still today are doing a great job of following that. We are completely needing a rescue. And so God gives us a rescuer. Um, what this leads to for a lot of us is this self-righteousness. And self-righteousness at first glance for a lot of us, it could be I'm holier than thou and I'm going to do this and this and this. And because of that, I'm going to earn my righteousness. Now, I don't know if we necessarily do this intentionally, but that is the subconscious motive. That is what is going on in our minds and in our lives when we're going through that. But you can also be self-righteous on the other end of things. So if that's legalism, then on the other end, which is license, you could say, I don't need God. I can do this on my own. I will save myself because I can do whatever I want. I don't need God. Both ways are self-righteous. And so what we are called to is to look at, at this piece here. Is the law good for anything in our lives? And they're saying, hey, we already have the law. We already have the promise. What are we, what are we supposed to do? The promise here reveals the remedy. Now, look in this. Look with me in verse 25. I'm sorry, 23. It says, but before faith came, and he's going to use the word faith five times in this next paragraph. Before faith came, we were kept in custody behind bars under the law, being shut up to the faith which was later to be revealed. Therefore, the law has become our tutor. The law served as both a guardian and a tutor. Therefore, the law has become our tutor to lead us to Christ so that we may be justified by what? Our works? Faith. That we would be justified by faith. Before faith, we were kept in custody under the law. Now I want you to think about what this looks like. These two terms, this, this idea of a guardian and this idea of a tutor, it, it gives you this sense of, of bondage. It's, it's the removal of freedom. The, the word guardian actually in custody, it actually means like you put military police in charge and they're watching you. The it, it was to, it, you could take a lion and you could put the lion behind bars in a cage and it will restrain the lion, but it doesn't change the heart of a lion. And so this is the picture for us is the law restrains, but the law, the law does not give life. And so we have that kept in custody. It's to keep us in check, but it's also the law is a tutor. Now, I don't want you to think of like going after school for math tutoring. A tutor in this world, in this context, is like those Greek tutors and their role. This is what they did. Those Greek tutors, they escorted children to school. They protected them from danger or distraction. And they made sure that the kids got to the place that they were set out for. 
the law in this sense is bringing us along and it's leading us to the point where faith could come, where the promise would be made available through Jesus Christ. And so there's this contrast. Life under the law, there's a sense of bondage. Life under the law, there's an impersonal relationship with God and it's motivated by a desire for reward or out of a fear of punishment. And when you are living under the law, you're constantly looking and you're saying, I'm not doing this, I'm not doing this. And so it gives you anxiety about your standing with God. Life under the promise is completely different. It's not a life of confinement, but it's a life of freedom. It's not an impersonal, but it's a personal relationship with God. And you're not living in this anxiety of what's going to happen to me if I don't do A, B, and C, if I don't keep the law. But there's a maturity of our character. And so one of the things that the law does brilliantly is it serves as a diagnostic for us. It shows us where are we at. So if you look at your life and your relationship with God, and that's what this is all about, is your life and relationship with God about bondage or freedom? Is your relationship with God impersonal or is it personal? Do you have anxiety and stress and worry? Am I going to heaven? Is God pleased with me? Or do I have a confident maturity? And as you look at this and as you look at your relationship with God, your life with God, and you start to see some warning signs because the law is exposing that sin in your life, it's, it's an indicator. Something needs to change. I need to claim once again the grace of God. I need to believe in the promise that was given to me. I, I figured out on my car, you know, every three to 5,000 miles, you get the light that comes on. It's time for the oil change. And that's good. And many of us will ride along for thousands of miles past that, hundreds, just ignoring that warning light. But I actually went online and I figured out how to actually turn the warning light off. <laughs> right? There's this thing. I can hold this button while I'm starting the car. And now there's no more warning light. Uh, and, and so I, I don't have to worry about it again, right? And that is kind of the progression for us is we look at the law and it's constantly like this warning light for us. And we just say, well, not going to read that anymore. Or we say, I'm not going to go to church anymore because those are the things that are reminding me of my sin. The remedy is faith in Christ alone. Because of his grace alone. That is what leads to salvation. Nothing more and nothing less. Again, in the book of Romans, chapter 8, it says, For the law of the spirit of life in Christ, Jesus has set you free from the law of sin and of death. Jesus has set you free. Not the law. If you could follow everything, then great, but you can't. For what the law could not do, weak as it was through the flesh, God did. Sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh as an offering for sin. Philip Ryken, he says, Salvation in Christ does not rest in a law that we inevitably break. It rests on a promise that God cannot break. When we put our faith and our trust in Jesus Christ, something that many of you have done, but you have not got this part right in your life because you're still enslaved to the doing, to the legalism. But when we do this and we follow and we put our whole lives and our trust in God, the result is that we are one, that we become one. When we finish out the passage with me, 
Galatians 25, it says this, But now, knowing what has already come, but now that faith has come, we are no longer under a tutor. We don't have a guardian. We don't have a tutor. We are no longer under that. For you are all sons of God through faith in Jesus Christ. For all of you were baptized into Christ and have clothed yourself with Christ. There is neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither slave nor free man. There is neither male nor female. For you are all one in Christ Jesus. And if you belong to Christ, then you are Abraham's descendants, heirs according to the promise of God. You are all Sons. One of the things it says in your outline, it says that we are children of God, that together we are children of God through adoption. Now, I want to be careful about this word children because that's kind of including males and females. But in the word, what Paul is saying is sons. And you might want to say, ah, male chauvinist, but he's not. Because back then, inheritances were given to the sons. It was an unfair culture back then, right? But that is where the inheritance came. And when you have an inheritance, because of the promise of God, this gift of salvation, inheritances, that's exactly what they are. They are a gift. It's not a paycheck where you earned your way and now you get what you get. To to just think about this for a second. If you think about an inheritance and you have like your Uncle Jack, your uncle whatever, and he leaves you an inheritance and he says, you are going to get $10 million, you're going to get the house, and you're even going to get the dog when I die. And he dies and now you go to court and now the judge says, all right, well you get it, but what you have to do to earn that is make sure that you go to this school, you have to have this major, you have to do this well, this is your GPA, and now here's a few more hoops to jump through. He can't do that. Right? If this is the inheritance that you were given, well, now you get it. You just get it. You don't have to earn your way into it. So we are children of God through adoption. We are clothed with Christ through baptism. Over and over again, Paul is using this theme of putting on clothes. I don't know if you remember a long time ago, Eric and I were up here, we we talked about putting on love. This is the wardrobe of the believer. This is what we're supposed to be wearing. It's this this reference to the Roman school of thought where they would put on a toga. It was called toga virilis. It was this idea when you became a man, you would put on this toga. It was a sign of your manhood and your intellect. Today, you wear togas and you're probably at a college frat party, right? So it means something totally different. But you put on Christ. Because we put our faith in the promise of God, we all stand together on equal footing. He says there's neither Jew nor Greek, there's neither slave or freeman, and there's neither male or female. Well, guess what? That pathway that leads to Jesus is the same for all of us. Salvation is available to all, no matter who you are, your race, your rank, your gender. Everyone can come to Jesus Christ the same way. There are still distinctions. There are still Jews. And Gentiles, right? There are still males and there's still females. And believe it or not, we can't even dismiss the slavery thing. That slavery is bigger today. 30 million slaves in the world. Slavery still exists. But we all can come to Jesus Christ and we all have a purpose. And he's all given, he's given us. This is, this is our calling and this is what we're supposed to do within the kingdom. But we all have this salvation and it's available to all of us. 
And because of that, we are set free together. The way to inherit the blessing of the promise that was given to Abraham is the same way that Abraham got it. And he put his faith in God. That's the same thing that we are called to do today. But we don't live like this, my friends. The problem is that we come in here every week and we, we struggle with our faith. The problem is that we come in here and we, we forget what it is that has been done for us because we're so busy trying to earn it still. I want you to think about this. Francis Chan tells a story about 23 South Korean pastors in 2007, July 2007. They were taken uh, by a Taliban and they were held prisoner for a period of 40 days in Afghanistan. Um, every day taken out with the, with the threat of they were going to be shot. And it was on the day before, the night before, these pastors got all together and they, they prayed and they said, God, whatever it is that you have for us in this life, we are willing. If you want to save us, then we, are, we will be saved. And if, if our lives are lost, then we do that for the glory. It says there was even some arguing amongst the pastors as to who would give their life first. Well, an agreement was made and 21 of the 23 were set free. Two of them were killed in the process. And Francis Chan got to meet one of these pastors and he's talking about this. And he says that once in a while we will get together and the question will be asked, don't you wish sometimes we were still there? Because he was so close to us. We felt the spirit of God working in us. We had come through this together. It bonded us in such a way and we were reminding ourselves. We constantly have to remind ourselves of the goodness of God and what he did for us. We have overcome because the blood of the lamb. But we we do that because we put our faith in. It's not because of all of this stuff, this laundry list of stuff that you do. I want to just show you one more picture and then we're done. Um, This is Sean. He's the dad and Noah, his son, Connolly. Uh, I don't know if you've been around here for a while. You've heard of uh, Noah Connolly. There's uh, bumper stickers everywhere. My heart beats for Noah. This young man was born with a condition where basically half of his heart uh, doesn't work. Um, And it was September 10th, 2015, uh, where his mom, Nicole, called me up and said, can you come down to the hospital? They say it's it. That's it. He's done. The, the, the pregnancy was tough. There was a surgery while she was in utero. And they didn't know if he was going to be born and die that same day. But he made it for a little while. And then September 10th comes and she says, this is it. And I go over to Chalk and I walk into this room where there's no joke, about 20 doctors and nurses huddled around this tiny infant with more cables and cords and pipes and hoses going into him than a bowl of spaghetti. No joke, it was all over the place. And his mom couldn't even be in the same room because can you imagine what it would be like to watch your child go through that? And I remember going into that room and I prayed with her and I said, God, if it's up to you, if you can, if you will, then save this child's life. My prayer is that one day we will see Noah Connolly running through the halls of Calvary Church. Well, Friday night we did the ice cream social with the school and Noah Connolly was running through the halls of Calvary Church. (laughs) Nicole sent me these two pictures and she said, God answers prayers. Can you believe 
what we had been through. And that bonds us and that brings us together. I want you to know that your salvation story is huge. That's why we gather together here. We have to remind each other that we are under the promise. We are under the blessing. And yes, we need the law because it shows us where we fall and where we mess up. But we are under the promise and we are under the blessing. I want to invite the worship team up. And we're going to praise God for that. We're going to remember that we have been delivered and saved from the penalty of sin and death because Jesus Christ came as God promised so that we would be set free. We have been set free together. And that's the gospel of freedom. And that's why we are talking about this. As you do this, worship and do it with all of your heart. No holds barred. Just go for it. And you have freedom here this morning, not just to worship right there in your spot, but we have some stations around here. Take the cup, take the bread, and remember what Jesus did for you. Give your offering and give generously. Give like you're crazy. Make your wife or your husband think that you're nuts because you just gave so much. Job security for that other verse I said earlier today? Okay. Uh, But then we come here together today, and we remember because we through Jesus Christ, have overcome. We pray, God, in this place, would you, would you give us the grace and the guts to not only have understanding, but to live out what this looks like in our life? Would you give us the power and the boldness to really live out how you want us to live? Not under the slavery and the yoke and the burden of, I have to do this and I have to do that, And not under the license of, I could do whatever I want. But that we would come here humbly and thankful for your grace and your mercy that you poured out so that we would be set free. We have been set free. So today in this place, we give you worship. All God's people said, amen. Would you stand up as we worship God together?